Martin, I'm going to ask you to come up now because you're going to tell us a little bit of your story of why it is you're coming to the waters of baptism. Okay. Um, yes, why now? I guess in the sense of in regards to baptism. Well, words that um, have profoundly moved me over the last couple of years um, are from a lady called um, Anne Larnett who said... I do not at all understand the mystery of grace, only it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. I'll say that again. I do not at all understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. Baptism. Why now? The simple answer is because I can. Because we can. And it is in many ways as simple and yet as profound to me as that. Uh, since being a child, I've always had a sense of God and spirit, love, um, I've always felt a little bit of an oddity in one way because I always enjoyed going to my church, if I was honest, since being a, a, a little chappy. Um, and I was brought up in the Salvation Army, some of you will know, and um, I loved playing my uh, tambourine from a very early age. I can remember enjoying listening to sermons, learning scripture, um, and indeed memorizing texts. Um, None of that made me a saint by any stretch of the imagination, as my brother and cousin would, would, would testify to, and more recently, uh, my husband. However, in many ways, the experience that I had as a child isn't that much different to what I have today. Deep within, I know and have a profound sense of being in communion with the divine. Perhaps the difference is that now I'm in a place where I know that all of me is covered, immersed by God's love. Nothing is left on the sidelines. This is about full immersion. I'm going to ask Martin to reaffirm his faith in Jesus Christ, and then we shall baptize him. Baptism is one of those things that is over very quickly. It's a little bit like eating a piece of bread and taking a tiny drink of wine at communion. It it's kind of feels inconsequential, but it's actually huge. And it's one of those moments in which lives are transformed and changed and the transformation of Jesus Christ that takes place in our lives is marked in a profound way. So this is a big thing, whilst it is also a small thing. Let's reaffirm your faith. Martin, do you believe in one God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit? I do. This is the God in whom I trust. Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour? I do. He has redeemed me and called me by name. 
Do you turn from sin, renounce evil, and intend to follow Christ? I do. Christ is my way. He is the truth and my life. Will you live within the fellowship of the church? And will you serve Jesus Christ in the world? With the Spirit's help, this will be my witness. We have heard your repentance and faith. So we now baptize you, our brother, in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. first reading which is from Luke 4 verses 14 to 21 then Jesus filled with the power of the spirit returned to Galilee and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country he began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone when he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom he stood up to read And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Our second reading is taken from Galatians 6, verses 1 to 10. My friends, if anyone is is detected in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if those who are nothing think they are something, they, are, they deceive themselves. All must test their own work. Then that work, rather than their neighbour's work, will become a cause for pride. For all must carry their own loads. Those who are ta- taught the word must share in all good things with their teacher. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right. For we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us us work for the good of all. And especially for those of the family of faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A very good morning. A huge thanks for the invitation to be here with you today and to share some thoughts on poverty and our response as individuals and as church. I should say from the off that I'm no academic and I'm absolutely no accredited expert. My experience of poverty has been first-hand from my childhood, 
through raising my own three children alone as a single mum, as well as via a career, as we said before, across local authorities, housing and charities, and in later years through ministry in the Anglican Church. I come from a poor background. Though I have to say, it didn't feel particularly poor at the time, and I did have a lovely childhood. I was born, despite what the chap at the back said, in the mid-1960s, in Odsall, in Salford. Statistically, the poorest area to come from in Western Europe at that time. And I'm the only child of a single mum. We lived with my nan and my granddad in a rented two-up, two-down house on a Coronation Street-typed terrace street with a pub on one corner and a shop on the other. We had an outside toilet and a tin bath that I got to use last each week. So whilst, as I said, I have some very happy memories from those early years, being last in that bathwater certainly isn't one of them. Nor was much of the food. We had tripe, we had pig's trotters and tongue. They often featured on our tea time menus. I've avoided them then and I've avoided them since. After the demolition of our houses in 1969, under slum clearance, as it was so beautifully termed, I grew up in Manchester. And none of my family were churchgoers, but I've always felt really interesting listening to Martin there. I've always felt a real sense of God's presence, a passionate personal faith, a real feeling of relationship with God from my very earliest memories. But when I came to discover church for myself at the age of 10 via church school, I found myself uncomfortable, to be honest, and over the years, increasingly like an outsider. Despite often, though not always, being made outwardly welcome, it was clear that the church defaulted to middle-class culture and voice as the norm. These people in the pews almost invariably felt very different to me and to my family. And that feeling has been compounded as I've entered ministry and had wider involvement from poorer work, with those from poorer working class backgrounds. So when I was asked to come to you today to share some thoughts on our approach as church to issues of poverty as part of your harvest celebrations, to be honest, I was absolutely delighted. Harvest, when we thank God for the many blessings we enjoy and when equally we reflect and seek to discern what from that bounty he might wish us to offer back. And I've suggested we use as our lens for that reflection this morning the passages that we've heard from Luke and from Paul's letter to the Galatians. In that Galatians reading, we had the phrase, in bearing each other's burdens, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. The law of Christ. A phrase not used in that precise way anywhere else in Scripture. The law of Christ is widely taken to be an allusion to the new commandment that we love one another. 
How do we help bear the burdens of the poor? How does fulfilling the law of Christ and that commandment to love one another look in terms of our relationship to those in poverty? And in the passage from Luke, Jesus reads the piece from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news. What does that look like? How can our offerings this harvest and beyond as individuals and as church constitute that good news? Jesus reads from Isaiah, and Isaiah lists what good news to the poor is. Good news lies in freedom for those who are imprisoned by poverty. It lies in the recovery of sight for those who are blind to poverty. It lies in release of the poor from the oppression of those who benefit from poverty. And it lies in the release from the indebtedness of the poor to the wealthy and the powerful. It's interesting, isn't it, that the giving of money is not seen in and of itself as key to the good news but rather it's the giving away of power, of voice, of influence, of freedom to act and to participate. Freedom and voice. I blog on issues of church and culture. And one of my first pieces referenced a book some of you may have read. It's called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Has anybody read it? It's the true story of a very successful journalist who has a catastrophic stroke in his early 40s, which results in locked-in syndrome. He's left able to communicate only by blinking one eye. The whole book is di dictated in that way, in fact. And he describes a powerful sense of being unheard of being voiceless, total frustration at his inability to make himself understood. And I'd very much echo that sense of frustration and inability to be heard on behalf of the poorer working class, particularly in the church. Earlier this week, I visited the estates of North Kensington with the Archbishop of Canterbury's Housing Commission, and there we met with those who powerfully articulated the issues of failure and neglect and injustice to the poor that led to the Grenfell fire. But those voices are still largely unheard and unheeded. The poor, the oppressed, those trapped in poverty obviously need us to give financially, but the heart of the good news referenced in Luke lies the requirement to give something which perhaps demands far more of us. The requirement to see that we need to give up something of our power, our voice, our position of privilege, and that is often far, far harder to do. Figures released last week, I don't know whether you saw them, state that in 2017-18, an estimated 4.3 million people are in poverty in the UK. 22% of 
of adults are in poverty and 34% of children. How are we as church hearing them? Because heard people become transformed people. Let me tell you about someone who was in my previous church. We'll call him Jim. Jim contacted me a couple of years ago via my mobile phone number, which was publicly available. He was at the side of a canal and wanting to end his life. He talked for a long time about struggling for money, struggling with relationships, and most of all, actually, making himself understood as someone with a significant stammer. We made sure as church that Jim got the immediate help he needed, but what transformed his life, and his life has been transformed, was being listened to and heard. He joined our church, became a volunteer in our cafe there, took a food hygiene course, and began to take part in leading parts of our worship. The stammer almost completely gone. Jim says that his encounter with church saved him. And yet all we've done is listen, empower, pray, and laugh a lot, actually, alongside him. Though he does have a really terrible cracker joke sense of humor, so we're still praying for that one, actually. Who are the unheard in our churches who we are blind and deaf to? Who are those in the membership of our groups and structures in our own communities, in our own networks? And what are we asked to give this harvest and beyond, not just in terms of money, but in terms of the more difficult gifts of choice, of a place at the table, a freedom to speak words we might find uncomfortable to hear. How might we use our own positions of power to act as gateways and not gatekeepers? And how might we as church amplify and advocate for the voiceless in our community? That's where our part in being transformational good news for the poor really lies. After the service this morning, please do come and speak to me at coffee. Challenge me. Let's continue this debate. I'm used to challenge, especially on issues of class, which is a really grey area. Even when you think you've graduated from the working class, and there's a whole debate in itself, can you graduate from your class? You find that others still perceive you differently. I bring to mind often, and with great amusement, the visit my daughter made to her sister while studying law at Cambridge. She was the only successful entrant from her comprehensive school. She was told by the other students there that listening to her northern accent was akin to being punched in the face. <laughs> I would very much add, in all that I've said, that I'm preaching this sermon to myself and to my own churches first. I have three churches in the center of Stockport, two enormous 
grade one listed buildings and one, the estate church at Brinnington. And there we're wrestling with the challenge of these passages too. How can we be truly good news to the poor and how might we take up that exhortation from Galatians to do good to all people as we have opportunity? How can we listen? How can we give voice and power away? I'm so, so encouraged, as I hope you are, that your church here is actively seeking to address those challenges. And I thank God sincerely for your willingness to engage in grappling with and praying through what truly doing good to all means. I'll continue to pray for you in that. I hope you continue to pray for our ministry in Stockport. May God grant us all grace to meet the challenges of our ministries and the courage and compassion to fulfill the law of Christ. And finally, I'd like to end with a quote. Christian Aid and others have used this and it'll be familiar to you. Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. But I'd suggest if you give a person a voice and they are transformed and empowered, they give voice to others. They become powerful tools of spirit-led transformation, encouragement, and change. That is the calling of the church. And for the unheard in our communities, that is the good news. great God of creative abundance. We come before you this morning as a people in need of your generous blessing. And so we offer ourselves to you with open hands and receptive hearts. Take away from us our pretensions of self-reliance and unmask for us our images of self-security. Help us to realise that our fleeting blessings of health, wealth and power are fragile idols of sustenance and that we entrust our souls to them at our peril. May we learn instead to see ourselves and our world with your eyes. And may we come to appreciate where true value lies, both within ourselves and in the lives of others. May our eyes be opened to the gentle gifts of grace that you've placed in our midst. And may we come to value the abundance of your hidden yet dawning kingdom as it is made real amongst us. And so we offer ourselves to your service. Take the gifts of our lives and bless them, that we might become a blessing to others. Whether we bring wealth or weakness, power or poverty, health or helplessness, we place our lives into your hands and we ask for your blessing. We offer before you today the resources of this church. We offer our resources of people, 
from pastors to volunteers to occasional attendees. We offer our resources of money, from that which sits in our personal bank accounts to that which we hold collectively as a community. We offer our building, our contacts, our friendships, our whole bodies, and the body of Christ that is this church in this place. May we learn together the lesson that hoarding the resources of the kingdom is not what we are called to. So grant us the courage to release to your service the gifts you have given us. And so mindful of the needs of others, we pray for those who live in need, poverty, uncertainty and fear. Aware that you call us to play our part in the coming of your kingdom of peace and justice. We pray for all those who are hungry today and especially for those who have this week used a food bank for the first time in order to feed themselves or their families. We pray for all those who will share lunch in this building together as we sit down together to share the blessing of food. May this tangible sign of your kingdom be transformative and life-giving in our midst. We pray for refugees and asylum seekers. We pray for the family that will move to the West End in the next few months. Whoever they are and whichever refugee camp they are currently in. We pray that their new life will be a blessing. We pray for those who have power to make changes at a national level, for policymakers, politicians, and business and industry leaders. We pray for our mayor and for those who will be standing as mayor next year. Keep our leaders from dehumanizing commodification of humanity. May they instead find ways of bringing the body politic to health for the common good. We ask for and commit ourselves to your transformative vision of a just and equal society, where none go hungry and all are fed. And so finally we pray for ourselves. May we learn to share both the hidden and visible blessings of our lives, offering ourselves and all that we are and have to the service of your inbreaking kingdom of equality and justice. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. <laughs>